I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, thank you all for coming. It's, uh, it's year two of Writers on Recordings. I'm over from New York where I run the reading series at the Unterberg Poetry Center of the 92nd Street Y. And uh, there is an annual reading series with contemporary authors like Nicola. And then there is our uh, archive dating back uh, to 1949. On Monday night, we, uh, A.L. Kennedy and I spoke together and we played extracts from the very first recording uh, in our archive. It's October of 1949 and it's E.E. Cummings. Um, this, this, uh, Talk tonight with Nicola is featuring T.S. Eliot, a recording from December of 1950. And um, before we begin, before we hear from Nicola and uh, Eliot, I thought I would give just a little bit of context, sort of what was going on at the Poetry Center at the time of Eliot's reading in December of 1950. Then we'll, we'll start. So, as I say, uh, the Poetry Center archive has been around since 1949. The Poetry Center itself has been around since 1939. Uh, it's sort of, though in that initial season, there were people like uh, William Carlos Williams and Marianne Moore and uh, Langston Hughes. It sort of takes off in the late 40s when uh, a gentleman named John Malcolm Brennan, who becomes notorious for uh, chaperoning, sponsoring and chaperoning and, and um, eventually writing a memoir about Dylan Thomas's rise and fall. Uh, he, he comes to the Poetry Center in the late 40s and coincides with all of these major modern poets not only being alive and at the top of their game, but willing to do uh, public evenings. Uh, so in the first couple of years, he, uh, he sort of gets everybody who's alive, uh, Robert Frost and Marianne Moore and Auden and William Carlos Williams, Edith Sitwell, and you know, even someone like Ogden Nash. They do a memorial to Lorca, and uh, he can't get Eliot. Uh, he he uses his connections in England to get in touch with uh, Eliot's flatmate, uh, John Hayward. I think is the guy's name. He uh, eventually gets a meeting uh, on one of his trips to England, and it turns out that Eliot is familiar with the Poetry Center because his plays are up in New York. He gets the notices from the newspapers and there are these ads uh, showing what the Poetry Center is up to. For the right fee, the next time he's in New York, he'll uh, make appearance at the Y. 
This goes on for several months, and, and eventually uh, Eliot turns up in December of 1950. A little bit later, I'll read uh, an extract from John McEnbrennan's memoir uh, describing the, uh, the Eliot uh, reading in 1950. Eliot came throughout the 50s, uh, though each time demurring to Brennan's invitations, saying, well, I was there a couple of years ago. I've got such little output, aren't the audiences bored of me? They weren't, um, and it, it, was, it was a smashing success every time that, that he came over. At the same time, this 1950 recording is the only one of his appearances that is recorded, and uh, its, its provenance is, is strange. The masters ended up at, at Harvard, and Harvard, when we begged them, sent a digitized version back. So. Uh, it's nice to be able to uh, play these excerpts. Nicola has listened to the whole recording. Elliot reads about 10 poems. She's chosen four. And in between the poems, starting, starting at the outset, is um, extracts from Elliot's introduction that night. As is often the case, before the, the poet reads, he or she clears his throat for a while. And this goes on for 12, 15 minutes. It's fascinating but we've broken it up because it goes on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, so before, before we hear from Elliot, Nicola, do you, do you want to um, maybe set the stage as well? Um, I, I use the, the introduction I thought was really interesting because um, what fascinates me about Elliot is the, the way he provides, he tries to be, the introduction is meant to be intimate, it's meant to be a way of people getting to know him, but it's actually a denial of intimacy. So I just found it very comical. So he, he does an introduction, which is actually a sort of deconstruction and a kind of, um, he's kind of laughing at the idea of introduction. It just seemed so appropriate to me that Eliot would do that. Um, so that's why I wanted little bits of it uh, throughout the readings, because it just, um, yes, the idea of his, his, his poetry was a way of expressing emotion, obviously. And, uh, but in the rest of his life, he was very held in. Obviously, I was delighted to be asked by Bernard to do this, but the reason, because I don't do many public appearances, the reason I'm doing this is because my long-term editor, Claire, who is sitting here in the front row, uh, Claire Rehill, she, um, she was my editor. She, I worked with her at Faber's, obviously, um, where Elliot worked. But, um, and then at Fourth Estate, I published several books with her editing me. And at a particular point, I can't remember when it was, a few years ago, she said, I can't be your editor anymore because I'm going to work full time with the, the T.S. Eliot Foundation. Um, so she, is bas she basically looks after the legacy of T.S. Eliot. And so that's given me a kind of um, spurious familiarity with T.S. I mean, I've always loved T.S. Eliot, but it's, it's made me feel as if I'm a distant relative of T.S. Eliot because, <laughs> because of Claire. And um, I, I, really, I'd just like to quickly talk about her connection because I, f I find it fascinating because she, she knew Valerie Elliott from her time at Faber's and, and uh, you, she was with Val Valerie Elliott when she died. So, um, and and uh, Valerie really trusted her with the legacy. It's, it's just a very beautiful thing and I think, you, uh, uh, and she was right to do so. And Claire's done some amazing work. She's, she repurchased the um, Elliot's childhood home in um, where is it in Lord New Hampshire? Is it New Lord Hampshire? Uh, Massachusetts. Yeah. So she's repurchased that, and it's all been 
kind of restored and it's uh, and it's now a place for poets and critics to do courses and um, she's just done all this amazing stuff and and uh, recently a a ballet uh, was it with the four quartets yeah in New York and, and in fact I was reading today about um, how how important kind of um, now Stravinsky was to him in the right of spring and how he sat in the audience for that and how, how meaningful it was in terms of his production. So I thought it was a, a really appropriate thing that this dance thing took place and how he was so angry by people's reactions that he, he poked people with the sharp end of his umbrella <laughs> during the uh, live event to try and stop them laughing. Uh, just seemed uh, so... So that's uh, Claire's work. And um, late last... I'm just showing off now, but late last year I got to go to... Here because her offices are in his old flat... Uh, in West London, and uh, she gave me a tour of the flat, and it was just, uh, it was just like, uh, just the most incredible experience, because uh, it's, I got to hold his copy of Ulysses, um, I got to um, look at his choice of tiles in the kitchen, uh, yeah, he'd made a special table out of these really garish tiles, and um, uh, just, uh, and, and even seeing his collection of typewriters, one of which had, um, just a bit of paper still in it with kind of jottings, him typing his name and kind of X, Y, 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 you know, just seeing these physical objects that had been so close to him. So that was wonderful. And also um, on another occasion, Claire was fishing around in her bag during a lunch and she had a little plastic bag in uh, her bag and she pulled it out and she said, oh, <laughs> she said, look what I have here. And I was, what is it? And they have been selling off some of Elliot's more ex kind of beautiful artworks. And um, she'd got some of the, the objects from his bedside table, which were like a little statue of Our Lady of the Virgin Mary and a, a rosary. And I'm a, 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 like a lover of the rosary, and so I got to hold his rosary in my hand, which I must say is one of the most uh, beautiful experiences. So um, when I was asked to do this, there was no way I couldn't do Elliot. There's just no way that I couldn't do him. See, uh, because I love him, but I'm not the most knowledgeable person about Elliot. I've, you know, I've read most Elliot, but I'm, you know, so I'm here as an enthusiast principally and as, yeah. Had you heard his voice before? I had, I had. And in fact, I was having a discussion with someone about um, whether his voice was preferable to kind of, is it Gilgood that does? Oh, okay, that's one you like. Uh, and apparently, Valerie fell in love with him hearing, uh, was it John Gill could um, recite something? She yeah. fell in love with him hearing his voice. So then I regretted not, because I was a purist and I thought, I only want Eliot uh, reading his stuff. And I must say, I thought when I heard him, it hadn't occurred to me, as a t I think I'd heard him previously in recordings, but uh, it occurred to me how much like Churchill he sounded. And then I was reading today that he had had his uh, false teeth put in a couple of years before this reading. And he said himself, I sound like Churchill now. <laughs> so, uh, so he does sound a bit like Churchill. But I love, I love his voice and I love how un-American it is, how he became this, you know, he was considered this kind of masked person. And he, he doesn't seem to have, have an American accent to me. He, he sounds quite like a sort of English gentleman. But I do love the way he sounds, yeah. Well, uh, should we hear him? Yeah. I uh, discovered... I turn it up a little. I, when I first began reading my own poems, 
that it is necessary to do a little preamble at the beginning and to make occasional remarks in between readings of poems or groups of poems. But I want to impress upon you that I realize that nothing that I say in this way and nothing that I'm saying at the moment is of the slightest importance. At least it is a matter of no importance whether anything I say is of importance or not. But the preamble, I think, is necessary because I think an audience wants to size up the reader uh, before he begins to bury himself in his own work and uh, to form some preliminary impressions for better or worse before he begins to read. So we'll hear, we'll hear more of the uh, preamble, as he calls it, <laughs> later on. I thought, uh, to continue setting the scene, I would just read a bit from Brennan's memoir. This is written in 1981. It includes chapters on uh, Cartier-Bresson and uh, Edith Sitwell and Elizabeth Bowen. And it'll just give you a sense of what it was like this night. This late in his life, Elliot was 61 and had given less than a handful of readings in the U.S. and I believe had only read once before in New York. The response to the Poetry Center announcement of the event suggested many people thought his reading might well be his last. On the morning after we had named his date in the New York Times, 15 or 20 requests were made for every seat. Pursued and badgered to use my influence to produce tickets, I found that people who'd never read a sonnet since seventh grade were suddenly lovers of poetry whose devotion I was implored not to dismiss. Whatever else he might have been in the eyes of the world, T.S. Eliot in 1950 was for New Yorkers a hot ticket. About a month before the event, he wrote from Chicago, I would not want to have my address in New York generally known, but will in due time inform you what it is. My overriding concern is the problem of dress. Shall I put on evening clothes? On the appointed evening early in December, I got to the Poetry Center an hour before the reading and found myself barred from even entering the building. Crowds on the sidewalk were being kept in check by policemen, one of whom, as I attempted to identify myself, looked at me like a Thurber dog confronted by an insect. Elliot's face seemed weighted with weariness, and when he stood up, I thought he was even more deeply bent than he'd been in London. But his sad, lingering hint of a smile suggested he was at ease with circumstance. Do you suppose I might read Proofrock, he asked, or would that be altogether too familiar to a sophisticated audience? As far as I was concerned, I told him to hear him read Proofrock would be a very special pleasure. I want to make a good appearance, he said. The directness and humility of this left me with nothing to say. One of the things that comes up in this preamble and uh, across the recordings is Elliot makes distinctions between he had begun recording his work in 1933 when he was at Harvard, and he did it uh, on, on a number of occasions. Uh, again at Harvard, he did four quartets in London. We'll hear some more about uh, what it was like to record his own work and the seriousness with which he took it. But he talks about the recorded reading and then this idea of a, a, a direct and, and personal reading 
he took great care once he had said yes to appearing at the Poetry Center uh, to try and make a direct and personal connection with the audience. At the same time, this distancing mm. that he does for the first uh, 10 or 15 minutes of the evening. Uh, he, he doesn't end up reading Proofrock at the Y, though he, he does go on to record it for, uh, for a, a recording in, in the 1950s that was put out by Cadden. I'm interested, before we go to, to Sweeney Erect, what made you choose this, this poem? And if um, there's anything we should be listening for before we play it? I think uh, my interest was more in the kind of the emotional journey of Eliot. Yeah, I'm and sorry, it's the preludes first. Oh, yeah. it is, it yeah. is. But I mean, in general, I'm interested in how the poetry represents uh, kind of emotion and living for him. And whereas everything else is uh, conventionality and formality, so the poetry is, it's, it, because he seems in life to be emotionally illiterate. And uh, the, the thing, I mean, that sounds insulting, but I mean, he, he was a very kind of formal, closed down person until the end of his life. So and, and in a way, that's why he married Vivian, because of her expression, her natural expression of emotion. And it was something that uh, I think really encouraged him to be creative and freed him. So, um, and, and what really fascinates me about him is the idea of um, him as a boy. Um, his parents were older. I think his parents were in their mid-40s when he was born. And he had this, he had this double hernia, which meant that he, he was always corseted and he was always wearing either canvas or leather trusses. And so he had, he had no idea that the body existed beyond the truss. And there's an anecdote about him seeing a, a little naked boy in a picture and he didn't recognize what this was because he didn't know that a child, a boy, could exist free of this constricted, this constriction. And if you imagine, I, th I think, symbolically what the truss, what this leather thing that holds your stomach and your, you know, holds you in, uh, the psychological impact that would have on you growing up. And I feel as if the, the, you know, the poetry is a way of, there is a sense of him having these masks and of the formality and his faith was another way of him being very conventional, being very restricted, but the poetry is a way of him escaping uh, formality. And so it's, a, it's kind of a wild and beautiful, disjointed thing. And um, yes, so I think a lot about uh, what it represents in terms of uh, the child being restricted in this way and how he grew up, how his faith was another way, his Unitarian faith was another way of, uh, of constraining him. The idea that people would come and, and want to size up someone like T.S. Eliot in 1950, just two years after he's won the Nobel Prize. It's interesting, I think, in settings like this, the self-consciousness with which an author brings to the stage as opposed to the page where he wants to bury himself in the work and at the same time he has to perform it there mm -hmm. in the flesh. Brennan talks about watching from the wings, this idea of there's T.S. Eliot out on stage and maybe when he comes back again or maybe when, when but many authors come backstage they, they return to a less public, but does he, but does he return no. to, yeah? I don't imagine so. The first poem that you've chosen, and it's the first poem that he reads, is The Preludes, which he, he goes on to say he'd written 40 years Earlier, 
which also seems kind of unusual. Although the other night when, when we were speaking with Alison Kennedy, the same thing was happening. We played recordings of Harold Pinter and E.E. Cummings, and, and they too went way back at the beginning. And Elliot, I think, will hear the extract from the preamble where he accounts for why he uh, likes to start at the beginning. No, we don't, so I'll just, I'll just read a bit of it. He says he always starts in chronological order. It's the simplest. And he says poets also tend to read their most recent work best. They like it the best. They're the least embarrassed by it. Of course, it begs the question, why not only read your most recent stuff? People um, don't want to hear it, though, do they? They want to hear the classics. I imagine it might have been painful for him because of like some of the poetry that involved uh, Vivian. It might have been painful for him to read that. It might have been um, uncomfortable for him. How do you think it feels? This wouldn't be. I don't as a, as a practicing author, I, and, and I was curious to hear Alison talk about this as, as well, to go up on stage and read something that you had written some 40 years before. Yeah. Would that be a, a strange act to perform? Yeah, I think maybe I've just been editing some very old short stories uh, for an American publisher, and that was, that was very painful for me because they just all seemed terrible. So no, but they, I mean, they were actually pretty terrible. <laughs> they were pretty terrible. There were maybe three that were good. But there, and I'd always convinced myself that I was a really good short story writer. It's like, I can do this. This is what I'm good at. But actually being confronted with the work, I was like, well, it's quite crummy. There were a few really, you know, really some good ones, but the most were dreadful. And uh, that would be agony for me to read. It was painful for me going through them. It was painful just because they are, they seem so naive and... Um, of their time and craven, it's just horrible. Do you mean, do you mean sentiment, style, uh, all just, of the above? Uh, uh, even um, cultural references, everything was painful. Yeah, everything was painful. So I imagine it, might, it must have been the same for Elliot. But and also he didn't have a huge body of work, so he was returning to the same pieces again and again, I presume, yeah. which he, he didn't enjoy. He says in, in one of the extracts we won't hear, he knows he'll disappoint some people by not reading <laughs> Proofrock. Doesn't care though, does he? Yeah. <laughs> but he's rather, he says he's embarrassed oh, by what? it. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting about that is that he'd gone on to, to read it and record it in other instances. Mm. I'm curious, I'm always curious in, um, in these instances where we're pulling from the archive to try and get at whatever the context, there's obviously a cultural, historical, or literary context for this particular moment. Mm. There's also, Elliot's a man, he's in New York, he's backstage, he's going to go out there, he's got some sense of what he's going to do. Why these versus those mm. on, a given, on a given night? I wish we had the other why appearances recorded because I'm very yeah. curious to know, Brennan makes reference to the close of an Elliot reading with the cultivation of Christmas trees, he refers to it as an anticlimactic choice to end his reading, I think, in 1954 or 1955. I tried to see if that reading took place around Christmas, as if there was some connection, and I think it took place in May. Um, anyway. Perverse. We should hear more Eliot. Absolutely. This is Eliot reading The Preludes, uh, which he had written 40 years before. The winter evening settles down with smell of steaks in passageways. Six o'clock, 
the burnt-out ends of smoky days, and now a gusty shower wraps the grimy scraps of withered leaves about your feet and newspapers from vacant lots. The showers beat on broken blinds and chimney pots, and at the corner of the street a lonely cab horse steams and stamps. <coughs> and then the lighting of the lamp. The morning comes to consciousness of faint, stale smells of beer from the sawdust trampled street with all its muddy feet that press to early coffee stands. With the other masquerades that time resumes, one thinks of all the hands that are raising dingy shades in a thousand furnished rooms. You tossed a blanket from the bed. You lay upon your back and waited. You dozed and watched the night revealing the thousand sordid images of which your soul was constituted. They flickered against the ceiling. And when all the world came back and the light crept up between the shutters and you heard the sparrows in the gutters, you had such a vision of the street as the street hardly understands sitting along the bed's edge, where you curl the papers from your hair or clasp the yellow soles of feet in the palms of both soiled hands. His soul stretched tight across the skies that fade behind a city block or trampled by insistent feet at four and five and six o'clock and short square fingers stuffing pipes and evening newspapers and eyes assured of certain certainties, the conscience of a blackened street impatient to assume the world. I am moved by fancies that are curled around these images and cling. The notion of some infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. Wipe your hand across your mouth and laugh. The worlds revolve like ancient women gathering fuel in vacant lots. One of the things you notice on these old recordings is on some evenings, such as the, the, the Cummings uh, reading I was referring to, the audience applauds after each and every poem. It makes you wonder the kind of spell that's been cast or the kind of tone that is in the room or that's being conveyed by the, the performance. This recording doesn't have that same sort of, there is a sense of expectation, but... Um, Are you finding fault with T.S. here? No, it's not. <laughs> It's, it's, not, uh, an, it's not an entertainment. You listen to these old recordings for traces of all sorts of things. Yeah. And the extent to which the audience is not egging the performance on, but that's not here um, but this, in I, the I, mood that he casts. I think the point with Elliot is that it's, uh, it's, um, it's this kind of, there are fragments, aren't there? And um, I, f I find that reading especially beautiful because of the sense, I always have a really clear sense of uh, moving through 
uh, streets with him. Like I always feel I'm moving, uh, there's real movement and um, I, I feel as if I'm walking and looking down alleyways with him, just the way he describes things so exquisitely and plainly. So that's why I really like that particular piece. And just the idea of all of those, those hands. Um, so everything's very uh, kind of beautiful and yet deadened at the same time, um, which, I, which I do find lovely. I, I think my main interest with Eliot is how um, his spiritual life informs his work. And how for, for many years he was considered a sort of radical writer, like avant-garde writer of his generation. And yet that was something he, he didn't want to be because he was naturally conservative. And he was, uh, he was fueled by his spirituality. It was the thing that um, that's what it was all about for him. So I find that intriguing. And I, I'm sure that may play a role in his readings. The fact that expectations were different from the person he was, which was a, 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 um, someone who was always really engaged with ideas of faith and who was naturally conservative, uh, but who was a kind of radical figure almost against his will. And also, if you imagine, he's expressing um, these deep felt emotions and his whole life is about warding off emotion and being closed down to it and being very conventional and formal. So it's that juxtaposition that I find intriguing and beautiful in him. Do you think that his conservatism, whether it's political or religious or in how he leads his life, what do you think its effect is on his art? His art doesn't feel conservative. Do you notice a change in his, his work as he moves from America, as he undertakes it, a religious I mean, conversion? I don't know Eliot well enough. I, I find it fairly consistent, though. I find the emotion and the spirit of it fairly consistent throughout most of the work. Maybe that's just me, though. He challenges, which is something I think is really important. It's not, it's not all there on a plate. He's not, um, and, but you have to, you have to work. You have to, you have to knit things together. You have to create your own meaning and try and uncover his meaning. So I remember when I was taught The Wasteland at school, it was, we were simply taught it as if it was a, a series of other people's quotes kind of just meshed together, which at the time seemed really audacious to me. I mean, a lot of my work has been like that since, but uh, it, it, seemed, uh, it seemed magical and audacious. And I, I think about the fact that he was raised uh, when ragtime became really important, the idea of uh, sort of discordant, meshed together musical forms. So he very much represents that. But behind it all is obviously his attempt to describe and to process and register a series of profound spiritual uh, experiences he had in his, the first in his 20s and another one short, uh, what, a few, couple of years after. That really was the kind of guiding principle of his creativity. But it's something like in terms of the wasteland, a lot of that, a lot of that, those lines, a lot of the references were taken out by Pound. He, he edited it and removed that stuff. So the poem, the poem at some level isn't, isn't entirely, it was what Eliot wanted, but it, you know, it had been changed, which I find, as a writer, I find that intriguing. That, that would never happen with me. That would never happen. <laughs>
with Jason, my editor. No. <laughs> you can't imagine meeting what is a, a better craftsman and, you know, he no, or she taking it, a... No, it's just um, uh, just the, the kind of the ideas of a thing. You know, I, I just don't know how those could be altered by another person in that way and for the thing to remain yours. But Elliot obviously allowed that to happen. So the poems are great, so I, I presume it worked. How much, uh, when you've been re-listening to Elliot in the last little while, do you begin to appreciate what he called sort of the auditory imagination, the, 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 the importance of, of rhythm, part of, I think, what you're saying about moving along with him by his deliberate attempts to convey rhythmically yeah. whatever scene th- he's setting. I think it's really, I, I think it's critical. I think it's really important, and it's something I'm, very aware of in my own work. How so? The, just the particular, it's, it's one of the most important things, constructing a sentence, the idea of the rhythm of the sentence. And I, I think I must have heard that in him very early on and uh, felt that in him. There's a, a sort of musicality and he's audacious, but there's a, a, a beautiful kind of rhythmic coherence to what he does, which is, I think, which when the meaning is disparate, it holds everything together. And it's very, um, it's very confident and very almost arrogant the way he does it, which I love. Always just admired that. When you've been listening to him and you sit down to write, do you feel he's in any way I, I altered had, the metro, the internal sort I of had, no, no, but I had, metronome? I, because I never uh, write while I'm listening, to, while I'm reading other fiction or poetry. When I was in my early... 20s, and I can't remember which novel, a very early novel, uh, someone wrote to me and had gone through, they printed out the novel and they'd gone through it and uh, in a luminous pen had out, had, they'd said, you're hugely influenced by The Wasteland and by T.S. Eliot, and they'd outlined phrases throughout the entire text uh, that were influenced by T.S. Eliot. So after that was like, there was, <laughs> I'd never read or, I'm, I'm not sure even if that was true or if they were a lunatic, but it was quite <laughs> scary that someone had really thought about it that much. And also, yeah, T.S. Eliot was a, was like a, I think he, I think your influences aren't always, you're not always aware of them. And yes. I do think there is something in the, the rhythm of his work. I do think there's a, like a musical connection between the, the idea of uh, ragtime and then what he does, meshing things together and the idea of uh, like R&B or hip hop now, the way that works, the way we've moved on as a culture. I think he's a critical figure in, in that movement, the idea of uh, like appropriation and um, creating holes from disparate pieces. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to think of anyone that would be more important than him. You said you got the Wasteland in high school. Talk a little bit more about your own personal history of discovering Elliot, reading Elliot, returning to Elliot. I was just simply, just simply studied Elliot at school. Yeah. So um, yes, and just was um, intrigued. And um, I've always found things that are uh, things that shove you away. I've always found those things the most desirable. You know, things that um, things that you really need to consider. And I, I found that with Eliot. I was intrigued and I obviously couldn't understand most of it. But there's a really fascinating quote, which I, I wrote down, but I probably won't be able to find, to do with um, how he's, which I think is really important in terms of 
Uh, yes, Eliot was interested in what a poem did, not in what it said. I thought that was beautiful. And that really, uh, I really feel that in terms of my own work. I'm interested in what a piece of writing can do uh, rather than what it's saying. You know, the, do you mean its impact on a reader? Do you, do you mean its effect? Like at a, um, like a subconscious level that, um, that, the, that the, a story is being told at a different, a level beyond uh, obvious meaning. Uh, that there's a like a meta, there's a meta meaning, and and inherent in that is the idea of transfiguration or um, transcendence. I've always felt that. So, creating spaces and creating a kind of confusions, uh, which are ultimately freeing, um, emotionally and spiritually. So I, I think Eliot really does that. I, I also just noticed while I was looking at this. On his first trip to London, he went on a special trip to, um, he went to visit Cricklewood. And nobody in the hotel or anything could understand. It's like, why would he go to Cricklewood? And he said, nobody else will go to Cricklewood. Cricklewood is mine. Nobody else will go there. And I've, I've often felt that way about the settings of my books. It's like, um, you'll choose places that nobody else would want to go to. And then you do really own those places in your, in your mind. You think, I own Luton now, or I own Ashford now, you know, it, I mean, not permanently, but you just feel that no one else has gone there. So I love the idea that uh, Elliot had gone to Cricklewood with, ex with expressly that desire, because no one else would go to Cricklewood. Yeah. So he went. Reminds me, um, the, the ranch where Georgia O'Keeffe lives in New Mexico, it's a beautiful mountain. And she says, if I paint it, it'll be mine. She paints it again and again and takes possession of the mountain. And uh, it's now known as her mountain, but I don't, I don't think that she was thinking of it as far as, as posterity. I, I, before we go back to Eliot, I wanted to just refer to his own thoughts about the music that he was attempting on the page. This is from 1933. He says, what I call the auditory imagination is a feeling for syllable and rhythm penetrating far below the conscious levels of thought and feeling, invigorating every word, sinking to the primitive and forgotten, returning to the origin and bringing something back. It works through meanings, certainly, or not without meanings in the ordinary sense, and fuses the old and obliterated and the trite and the current and the new and the surprising, the most ancient and the most civilized. Should we skip ahead? Do you want, should we hear from, from, he reads two sections from the wasteland. He reads sections one and sections five. We're gonna, we're gonna hear them both, um, each of them. One of them is five minutes, the other is seven minutes. Well, let's listen to the first section and then talk some more. There's almost nothing left to say about the wasteland. Uh, that, that I can say. Um, and I think I will read the first and the last sections. The Burial of the Dead. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, Stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. 
Somehow surprised us. Coming over the Starnbergersee with a shower of rain, we stopped in the colonnade and went on in sunlight into the Hofgarten and drank coffee and talked for an hour. Been gar keine Russin, stamos Litauen, echt Deutsch. And when we were children staying at the Archduke's, my cousins, he took me out on a sled and I was frightened. He said, Mary, Mary, hold on tight. And down we went. In the mountains there you'll feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. What are the roots that clutch what branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images. Where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. You gave me hyacinths first a year ago. They called me the hyacinth girl. Yet when we came back late, from the hyacinth garden, your arms full and your hair wet. I could not speak and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead and I knew nothing. Looking into the heart of light, the silence. Who don't let us bear? Madame Sosostris, famous clairvoyant, had a bad cold, nevertheless is known to be the wisest woman in Europe with a wicked pack of cards. Here, said she, is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor. Those are pearls that wear his eyes. Look. Here is Belladonna, the lady of the rocks, the lady of situations. Here is the man with three staves, and here the wheel, and here is the one-eyed merchant. And this card, which is flanked, is something he carries on his back, which I am forbidden to see. I do not find the hanged man. Fear death by water. I see crowds of people walking round in a ring. Thank you. If you see dear Mrs. Equitone, tell her I bring the horoscope myself. One must be so careful these days. Unreal city. 
Under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many. I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet. Flowed up the hill and down King William Street to where St. Mary Walnut kept the hours with a dead sound on the final stroke of nine. There I saw one I knew and stopped him, crying, Stetson, you were with me in the ships at Miley. That corpse you planted last year in your garden, has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? Or has a sudden frost disturbed its bed? Oh, keep the dog far hence, that's friend to men, or with his nails he'll dig it up again. You, hypocrite lecture, mon semblable, mon frère. How much of that do you think is landing with an audience? Uh, you know, gathered as we are and hearing it just kind of unfurl. I mean, I suppose one way to think about it is that it's 25 plus years since that poem is published. So they've, an audience has had time to, I don't mean from yeah. now, I mean from him reading it on stage. Yeah. There I'm, is so, the, I'm so used to it now. It's just, uh, it's like just familiar sounds to me. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than, uh, and it's also just uh, snatches of meaning, but because I'm so familiar with it, 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 it has a kind of coherence for me. He, uh, he says in, in one of his comments about rhythm that, to correct his verses, he, he often accompanies himself reading drafts aloud with a small drum, which I thought was... <laughs> I can't imagine that. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't say whether... It, he's playing the drum or he's hired some kind of, <laughs> I'd picture a drummer boy. Right, or the monkey. When you listen to him, do you, do you feel uh, enticed to read him aloud? Have you read him aloud, even privately? I, I, I actually, he's the only poet that I, I recite to myself every so often. Um, always wrong. Always get it wrong, <laughs> but so but it's part of the fun. What what of his do you recite? I, I recite the wasteland. The snatches of it always come to me. I mean, everyone when they hear the phrase "unreal city," you immediately just think of London. Just basic little things like that. There are hundreds of those in Elliot, so they just come back to you, and they they just represent a kind of tiny, kind of yes, like a sense a moment. I think we should hear. I know we're moving out of order, but. We should hear Eliot on what others make of the meaning of his verse, which is the third introductory extract. Um, but as for what to say about them, well, uh, there are now so many other people who know a good deal, understand my poems a good deal better than I do. that I'm rather diffident about uh, giving any sort of explanation <laughs> because they appear sometimes to mean so much more and such different things than anything I ever thought. And I'm especially nervous since uh, 
people have also been doing a little in the way of analyzing them according to Freud or Jung or somebody else. And uh, if there are any uh, horrid meanings which uh, I myself are unaware of, that uh, you must uh, take for granted and not blame me for them. In, uh, in preparing for today, one of the things that, that I came across was there's a, a kind of tribute to Eliot that Seamus Heaney wrote around the Eliot centenary in 1988. And he describes coming across Eliot as a, as a high schooler and Eliot being the buzzword for obscurity and obscurity being the buzzword for modern poetry. And he goes on to describe being terrified by having to teach the Holloman in front of, and he grasps for all of the commentary he can possibly uh, get his hands on. It's a lovely piece because it charts Seamus Heaney's own sort of trajectory from encountering this work in anthologies and a little bit at school, though not really uh, for him, to the pressure of having to explicate it to what it then meant to him as uh, a practitioner and um, then as a kind of master craftsman. I'll just read a little bit more from, from Heaney's tribute. It's, it's, worth, it's worth quoting. He says, what is first encountered as a strange fact of culture, this poetry is internalized until it becomes second nature. Poetry that's originally beyond you and generating the need to understand and overcome its strangeness becomes a familiar path within along which your imagination opens up pleasurably backwards toward an origin and seclusion. The experience of the poetry is one that deepens with reenactment. Should we hear, I guess, before the last Wasteland extract, maybe we should play. I, th I find what he says in, in, in the fourth of these introductory uh, passages fascinating about this phenomenon of encountering one's audience, why people would turn up to hear someone read from their work. Anytime this, this happens, it still happens at the Poetry Center, often enough, with famous writers thanking people for coming and wondering aloud why people would ever come. Why would you ever, you know, come out on an evening to hear someone like T.S. Eliot read from his work? And it's, it's never quite believable. The, the sentiment can be authentic, but at the same time, and maybe it's because it, it, at this point it's what writers do, and it was far less frequent back in the day. But at the same time, you know, Eliot's reading had been announced a year in advance. People had booked their tickets. Here they were. Let's hear, let's hear this last bit of the intro before uh, he reads what the thunder said. Then again... Another thing that makes it more difficult is that I know that uh, of a, now of a fairly large proportion of my poems there are recordings. And some of the recordings I've taken a good deal of trouble over. And I wonder why, except out of uh, uh, curiosity to, to see the man doing it, uh, people should now bother to uh, come out on rainy nights 
and sit in a, in a, in a theater uh, to hear me when they could, if they liked, sit comfortably at home or somewhere else and uh, hear the records. But uh, just as I'm told that there are boys nowadays who, who would rather, uh, who actually prefer uh, to see a football game by television than to go to the football game. And they may be sensible. <laughs> but um, that's one way in which I think I shall never be seen. I hope not. Television. <laughs> but, uh, the audience loved that. Yeah. His refusal to embrace technology. <laughs> I don't, Claire, did he ever appear on television? One of the things that uh, he says in the intro, talking about the recordings that he's done, is the weeks-long process of doing four quartets. And one of the reasons it took so long is because he wanted to get it right. One of the reasons was sometimes he had a cold or the electricity was weak. And also, there's the pressure not to, to, to do anything wrong. He says if you, if you make a mistake on the recording and it gets printed, everyone who listens to it and listens to it again has the anxiety of waiting for the mistake to come up again. He says it also took a while because you can only have your good radio voice for 20 minutes at a time. And then, but it's not, uh, the reason I say these things is, is because I, I find it interesting to think about what Elliot thought he was doing when he came to places like the 92nd Street Y, this idea of a, a, a more direct or personal reading in contrast with going into a studio, or sometimes he did it at his, at his house, I think. The, the, the pressure wasn't the same. I think some people would think it was even greater pressure as a kind of tightrope walk or something. You only have one shot in the live performance. But on the other hand, maybe it has to do with just this human element and the mortal and being forgiven for needing a sip of water or fumbling with his or her pages. Um, do you have any thoughts about how he moved between his idea of these recordings for, for posterity and perhaps as an extension of the work he published and then the occasional readings that he would give? I do know that he, he says at one stage that when he was making that, the big recording of the four quartets, someone dropped one of the records. Can you imagine? Yeah. He spent weeks doing it and then someone just drops it. Some random individual in the uh, recording studio. So it all has to be done again. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> the parallel or core to that story is, is when he did proof rock at Harvard, the masters were no good and they had to ask for him to do it again in London. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting, it's worth going online and looking at, is um, the archival work that the, the people at the Woodbury Poetry Room have done around Elliot recordings. There's a, a, a charming write-up of, of Christopher Ricks trying to read Proof Rock. He gives their recordings by Ricks on their website. You just Google Christopher Ricks and Proof Rock. He does it in two different ways. He, he finds it hard to crack. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not easy to perform uh, T.S. Eliot in, in ways that live up to 
Yeah. yeah. Before we hear what the thunder said, is there anything that, that you wanted to say about it? I find it the most moving thing by Eliot. I just find it, um, yes, one of my favorite pieces by Eliot. Just the, uh, the rhythm of it and the kind of sense of imminence and hopefulness. And yeah, I find it very, very powerful. I find the end very powerful. I, I really love it. This is, um, this is, of course, the last section of The Wasteland, and um, it, it goes for about seven minutes. After this, maybe we'll take a few, we'll take a few questions. What the thunder said. After the torchlight red on sweaty faces, after the frosty silence in the gardens, after the agony in stony places, the shouting and the crying, prison and palace and reverberation, a thunder of spring over distant mountains. He who was living is now dead. We who are living are now dying with a little patience. Here is no water but only rock, rock, and no water, and the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock, one cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock, dead mountain mouth of carrier's teeth that cannot spit. Here one can neither stand nor lie nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. There is not even solitude in the mountains, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. If there were water and no rock, if there were rock and also water and water, a spring, a pool among the rock, if there were the sound of water only, not the cicada and dry grass singing, but sound of water over a rock, where the hermit thrush sings in the pine trees. Drip, drop, drip, drop, 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 but there is no water. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together, but when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you, gliding, wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman. But who is that on the other side of you? What is that sound high in the air? Murmur of maternal lamentation. Who are those hooded hordes swarming over endless plains, stumbling in cracked earth, ringed by the flat horizon only? What is the city over the mountains, cracks and reforms and bursts? in the violet air, falling towers, Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London, unreal. A woman drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings, and bats with baby faces in the violet light whistled and beat their wings and crawled head downward down a blackened wall. 
and upside down in air were towers tolling reminiscent bells that kept the hours and voices singing out of empty cisterns and exhausted wells. In this decayed hole among the mountains in the faint moonlight the grass is singing. Over the tumbled graves about the chapel there is the empty chapel only the wind's home. It has no windows and the door swings. Dry bones can harm no one. Only a cock stood on the roof tree, cocorico, cocorico, in a flash of lightning. Then a damp gust bringing rain. Ganga was sunken and the limp leaves waited for rain while the black clouds gathered far distant over Himavant. The jungle crouched, humped in silence, then spoke the thunder. Da, Dutta. What have we given, my friend? Blood shaking my heart, the awful daring of a moment's surrender, which an age of prudence can never retract by this and this only. We have existed, which is not to be found in our obituaries or in memories draped by the beneficent spider or under seals broken by the lean solicitor in our empty rooms. Da, diatron. I have heard the key turn in the door once and turn once only. We think of the key, each in his prison. Thinking of the key, each confirms a prison. Only at nightfall, ethereal rumors revive for a moment a broken Coriolanus. Da, the boat responded gaily. To the hand expert with sail and oar, the sea was calm. Your heart would have responded gaily when invited, beating obedient to controlling hands. I sat upon the shore, fishing, with the arid plain behind me. Shall I at least set my lands in order? London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Voices goes in El Foco, Kelia Finna. Quando fiamo ti caledon, oh swallow, swallow, le prince d'Aquitaine à la tour abolie. These fragments I have shored against my ruins. Why then I'll fit you, Hieronymo's mad again. Dotta, Tajatam, Tamyata, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. I love the vigorous way he says shanti at the end. It doesn't seem very peaceful, does it? I also love to hear Vivian's voice in the, the questioning, like the persistent questioning, which is apparently something she did. 
persistently, kind of nervously questioning. And I love to hear that in the, that particular piece because she, you can just feel the, the women in his life, you can just feel their, the sound of their voices in the work. Should we take a few questions? Yes, it's really just a reflection on what you began with, that it's, um, Elias isn't entertainment, though even in the plays, um, it, they have the same, you have to work, there's somehow a depth, um, the family reunion or whatever, that you have to work at. And that, that, for me, it makes Elliot so essentially modern when we're surrounded by ego and entertainment. And I think his, the practice of his, it was a practice of his faith that was so consistent and so coherent in his work. So his work is almost like a liturgy. And, um, and there's now in the Anglican church, there's a, a, a dumbing down of the liturgy um, in order to make the service an entertainment. And the congregations are, are diminishing, even as that is tried more and more. You, you do have to work at it, like you have to work at any practice, but the liturgy, the, beautiful, the beauty of the liturgy, which I see his work as, is apparent even if you haven't done the work and don't understand it. Mm. And I have heard his, I have heard the Magi recited by a young man who had a, a very deep practice, a multi-faith practice, and he he hadn't got the tradition, which I think uh, his recordings are in those traditions, even if you hear Tennyson and those early traditions. There is a, a tradition of the early recordings that were available. But um, this young man didn't have that tradition. And I know that he worked. He worked and worked and worked at that short poem. And he produced it in a way which wasn't Eliot's, but somehow it had the intense... And there is that Krishnamurti, there is that Shanti thing about if only listen, and it has a pace and it has a liturgical pace. So what I'm saying is, just, is thank you very much for beginning, both of you, with that, that it's not entertainment. And there is something, the essential thing is the almost liturgical practice of his, of his faith. So it's a reflection on yeah. what you both say. I know that he... Um he found his Unitarian faith really unsatisfactory because there was, the, uh, there was no idea of sin, which was really important to him, the idea of sin. And even now, uh, as a Catholic, um, I've had heated discussions with people about the idea of sin, which people are very resistant to. <laughs> so, um, yes, he, he said in his faith there was just um, um, kind of the idea of something you should do and something you shouldn't do, like the done thing and not the done thing. And, but Eliot really believed in the idea of sin and suffering, all these uh, kind of big faith-related words, which uh, I'm very much with him on there. So, yes, and also I find what you're saying about, uh, um, uh, as a practicing Catholic, uh, the church I'm in, which is a Carmelite, I'm a member of which is a Carmelite church, it's very pared down. But I find if I go to the, the local Anglican church, it's, it's much more Catholic than uh, a Catholic church. I find that. Uh, strange, but yes, the, I agree with you that the rhythms, even if you don't know, uh, you uh, and he he always said that himself that the rhythms are kind of liturgical and they are kind of sort of like the idea of a sermon, all of that stuff unconsciously uh, filters through. Yes, I think that's part of the intense beauty. I was struck by the parallel of 
Elliot as a reluctant speaker and you said yourself you're uh, not always keen to, I've, I've been chasing around the country trying to see you at a public engagement before, I'm delighted <laughs> to see you today and I, I really enjoyed um, the way that you were feeling through Elliot's responses to reading and how he might feel about reading his work through your own experience as a writer but um, I wondered why, why is that encounter between writer and reader something that you would resist are, are readers frightening is there something difficult about reading something with um out loud with the readers in the room rather than from a distance um i'd just like to know more about that yeah i don't really um i don't object to reading the work but very early on, when I, um, I was always shy, so I didn't want to do public, <laughs> Claire's face, like, oh, oh, the nightmare of Nicola getting her to do things. Uh, I didn't want to do things, but I did a, a very early reading with Ananda Botton, and we were together, and I had just written um, Wide Open. And so I had, I had hardly done any readings, and so I just stood up and I did the kind of prose poem at the beginning, so I, I just like I thought that's what a reading was, you, you, and and then Alain did his thing. I mean, and there was just a stunned silence. <laughs> I was like, oh, that didn't go down very well. And then Alain did his thing, and people loved it. And afterwards, he took me out for a meal, and he explained to me. He said, "People aren't interested in the work; they're interested in you talking about your life as a writer." And that's just so boring to me. I mean, seriously, my life as a writer is mundane. So, um, yes, yeah, so I could never quite see the point of it. And also, I, I don't know, you change over time. I don't mind doing it so much now, but I don't seek it because I find it just distracts me from the work I'm invested in. I, I get thoroughly engaged with the work I'm, that I'm immediately interested in. So the old work sort of dies for me very quickly. And uh, I, I actually, I even forget the meaning of it. Like my most recent book, H-A-P-P-Y, uh, people ask me questions about it and I've just literally forgotten half of, half of the, the stuff that I was very engaged with when it was, I was writing it, but I, I just forget and I'm just not connected to it anymore. I, they're, they're just like abandoned children, really, the books. <laughs> <laughs> so and I'm just engaged with the new, the new baby. You know, so I'm like a terrible mother. <laughs> All these waifs just hanging around with snotty noses, and then I'm, I'm there, like diligently guarding the new, the new child. So, yeah, that's mainly why I don't. But I mean, I, I don't know if Elliot didn't like reading. Do you know Claire? Because he was, um, I think he wanted to be a part of the establishment, and I know he was very early on. He was he, like he was rejected a lot by the establishment and they, they said he wasn't a proper poet and, and they said terrible things about him so um, I think he maybe he enjoyed the, the the reading publicly I think it was just very dutiful I yeah. think to occasions yeah so when people wanted him to read then he would read I, I was amazed to say it was a year in advance he'd be booked for that presumably after the Nobel in 48, they booked him in 49 and he came in 1950. Um, he was very aware of his public responsibility as a, as a figure, mm. but he didn't relish the idea at all. Yes, maybe the idea of obligation, that was a part of his upbringing, wasn't exactly, it? And yes. doing the right thing in convention exactly. and not disappointing people. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. no, n- yeah. <laughs> nothing in that uh, yeah, do I relate yes. to. <laughs> <laughs> Don't some care. Reading. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think the work should uh, speak for itself. Uh, I, always, I always feel as if I'm a bit of a disappointment in person. I, I feel as if the work, uh, the work uh, is enough. Like the work, the work engages me when I'm engaged with it. So I feel as if that... I don't know if writers always did readings. There was a real vogue when my career started, which is a long time ago now, but there was a real vogue where you had to do it. Yeah. And I really rebelled against that, didn't I? I was like, just not doing it. Just not doing it. Yes, he loved doing it. And, the, and you see with some writers, some writers are very different, aren't they? Some are natural performers, and it's very much part of what they do. Yeah, I did a tour of um, Russia a couple of years ago with with uh, I think four other writers, they were all great performers, and they just loved it. And it was, it was a part of the work, and the, the work was all about making space for readers and for engagement. And that's just not that's not of interest to me. That's not, yeah. So I was the, the freak on the end that was just closing everything down, just closing everything down all the time. But yeah, but it's nice. I'm glad they exist. Following the work of Eliot and Indeed Joyce, uh, how many writers progress literature any further? What more can be actually accomplished with the form than we have seen in his and Joyce's career? I suppose uh, I think it just entirely depends on uh, what you think the purpose of writing is, whether it's to entertain or to confound or to educate. Just a million. I mean, the culture is always changing, so writing hopefully always represents those changes and is innovating and is um, evolving in its own way. I, do, I, I mean, I can't answer in terms of the novel and whether it's going to carry on for any period of time. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think there, there will always be people that love the form, um, but is it still a dominant form or will it continue to be? Probably not. Uh, it just depends if you love language um, and if you love words, which I do. So that's, uh, there's a kind of um, tangible, spiritual, emotional relationship there. And some people have that. And, uh, you know, there, but you can, I don't think literature ended then by any means, no. I mean, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. I mean, how could that not exist? I have a very crude question, but first I just thought it might be worth saying to people who don't know that just two doors along from here, Bertrand Russell used to live, and Ray Monk in his biography describes how Eliot and Vivian stayed there for a while, and how Russell seduced Vivian, and of course in his massively self-deceiving way justified it on the basis it was good for her mental well-being. (laughs) Anyway, if you go along there, you'll see the plaque to Elliot, and you look up to the fourth floor on the right-hand side. That was him. Do you think it was good for her mental? I don't think it was good for her mental. I don't think so. I'll wrestle it out. Okay. I think it was good for her. But but my my crude question with both of you was was, uh, how good was Elliot at reading his own poetry? Well, I love his reading. I can't, I can't imagine anyone else reading it. What did he refer to in that poem? What does he refer to Bertrand Russell as a something fetus? It's like a very funny reference to, do you remember what he calls Russell? Yeah, it's like a very funny mischievous phrase he uses for Bertrand Russell. 
just that I, I mean, I don't listen to a lot of that, but often I find folks don't do justice to their Oh, I think they always do justice to their own work. I just want to say something about that because I'm an ex-performer myself and I'm totally struck by the breath control. That doesn't happen just by standing up and reading that stuff. It's phenomenally difficult and he had it absolutely. Now either that was nerves and he rehearsed and rehearsed for a long time or it was enjoyment. Yeah. But it was one or the other because that stuff does not just happen. I mean it was the breath control was staggering. Uh, so that's my answer yeah. to that question. I, I do find it beautiful. Yeah. One, one, of, one of the other things that Shemusini says in his tribute to Eliot is he can never produce the, the voice uh, that he reads Eliot with that is and hear, hear that voice. So, some, sometimes you hear people and it's good surprise and it stays with you and other times you hear people read and it's bad surprise and you, you wish that you could. Um, a, a historical footnote to uh, all of this is the, the appearance in 1950 ends with Eliot reading one of the four quartets. There's a short intermission and then he comes back and the recording ends with him saying, and now I'm going to read one of the four quartets, and then it stops. So, so disappointing, wasn't we're, it? We haven't asked anyone who was in the room that night, did it in fact happen, or when the recording shut off, was that you know, the end of the universe? But we're pretty sure that it did happen that night, and it, un, I think, underlines the treasure that this archive and other archives like it is, um, because often or not the record player didn't go bust and we can all gather and sit and listen in a, a concentrated um, at the same time collective and private way it's a beautiful thing mm. yes thank you hi when you said the idea of sin and then you kind of went sin and suffering and i just wanted to hear more <laughs> and <laughs> it seemed to resonate with you but then you kind of held it in that felt very elliot like <laughs> but then I wondered as well if he was superstitious at all. I mean, there was all this religion, and I wondered if there was a superstitious side. That's just a to T.S. Eliot. Yeah, I don't know. Would there have been? No, I think he was. I think there was a link. He he was brought up in the Unitarian faith, as you said, but actually spent most of his days with an Irish nanny for the first part. Of he did. And then she brought him to the mass, and I think that might have been the beginning. I think um, he loved his nanny because his very, mother was very, very formal and very yeah. controlling and I think he loved his nanny and I imagine that so the the atmosphere of the kind of Catholicism the candles everything yeah. was imbued that imbued a, a passion for him he and felt certainly the Virgin Mary was wonderful I mean they had statues as Nicola mentioned I have brought many statues mm -hmm. kept cards of her and prayers to her and, and I thought about it Going the whole hog, really, going towards yeah. the Yeah. Surprised he didn't. I had superstitions as well, certainly. I think. Because religions have that. There's always a tendency to superstitions attached. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, but I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know about uh, that too detailed. No. Yeah. I was just wondering, as someone who writes about uh, people on the margins and uh, sometimes working class people, um, what 
what your thoughts were, if you had any thoughts about Elliot's own uh, uh, treatment or the, the role of the working class and, and the masses mm. in his work. I think he thinks. I think he thinks often of the, uh, he thinks of those voices as banal voices, doesn't he? And so he. Um, so that's kind of the role they play in in the sort of yeah in the feeling of a piece. Um, that's certainly not my feeling um, about that. But I'm obviously because I spent a large part of my um, childhood and teen years in South Africa, so I have a, a very different relationship. And I think in a way. Um, sort of in sympathy with Elliot, who came from nowhere, didn't belong anywhere. And yes, yeah, so I feel that very much myself, but a part of that is that I don't really think about class in terms of writing. It's just not something, yes, so I don't, it's, it's not a considered thing for me, which I think is maybe why, yes, I, so I, I, it just happens to be people that I write about. It's not a, I don't think about class, really. <coughs> very imprecise but my work just doesn't come my work is very considered in some ways but not considered at all in others and class is something that I just am not I'm not I, I mean I just am bored by it so I, I just hate kind of middle class writers writing about writing that's like my pet hate so I would just define myself against that um, that's 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 as far as it goes for me kind of in terms of planning or the intellect Thank you, Nicola, and thanks to all of you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.